Hello, and welcome to the Youngin Kotisal podcast, where we are teachers helping teachers. Ready when you are? Today, I am talking to Wayne Finley. Welcome, Wayne. Thank you for having me on the show. It's very exciting. A uh, big moment uh, for me in my life, in my career, to be on this show. Thank you very much. Wow. <laughs> I'm glad I recorded that. <laughs> Don't edit that out. That's that's uh, should be on the homepage, I think. All right, we'll we'll do that. So uh, I wanted to first talk to you a little bit about what brought you here to Korea in the first yeah. place, and sort of a little bit about your teaching, and then maybe a bit about Kotisal and uh, kind of what's going on there. So you came to Korea in 2010, correct? That's right. Uh, more than 10 years ago now. Uh, time has flown by. It doesn't feel like. Um, more than 10 years, but on the advice of a teacher trainer, I was training to be a teacher in Barcelona, uh, doing what is like a CELTA equivalent. It wasn't the CELTA, it wasn't, didn't have that prestige, uh, but it was called an equivalent, you know, 180 hours study time, eight hours of practice in the classroom. And then I didn't really have a plan for my career or for where I wanted to go in the world and do anything really, you know. Uh, so at the end of the uh, in-classroom practice, I asked the teacher trainer, hey, if you were my age, if you could go back in time, where would you go, uh, like with my background? And he said, well, I would go Japan or South Korea. And uh, mm-hmm. that was a big surprise for me because I didn't really know anything about Asia. Right? I only knew things I saw on TV, like travel shows, maybe. And then I thought, Japan, South Korea, I was thinking he would say France or Spain or Germany, somewhere very close uh, to right. England, where I'm from. Uh, so as soon as I got back from Barcelona, I went onto the internet, Google, did a search, typed in Japan, South Korea, China came up. China was the one I first thought about because it looks like it would be easy, you know, go to China, teach in China. And then they said, well, you need one year teaching experience. I had zero Uh, So that was impossible. Uh, And then the next country that made it look very easy was Korea. There were so many agencies to... They made it sound very exciting, like you'd be having the time of your life. There were waterfalls and people climbing (laughs) mountains. And they were saying it's the best students in the world. They They treat you like a great teacher. And so then I saw, well, they pay for your flights. They pay for your apartment. They give you a good salary uh, right off the bat. And so then uh, that's when I went downstairs and I think my mom was downstairs. I went down and I said, I'm going to South Korea. <laughs> and their response? The response was, Korea, what, are, you, are you out of your mind? Where is Korea? Like they had to go on the map. Uh, and that was a, an experience I had even when I told bank managers because I had to tell them where I'm going. They're like, Korea, isn't that dangerous? Don't they want to attack America? They had no idea that South Korea was a country where I was, um, a kind of small place in England I was from. So everybody was thinking North Korea, it's dangerous, it's a war zone. Uh, reality, once I picked up um, a book in, uh, in the library, I think it was a Lonely Planet guide, was like, wait a second, this is actually a very modern country, it looks like very progressive, doesn't sound very dangerous, doesn't sound like they're being attacked every day by North Korea. And so then that's when I went through the quite long process of, you know, applying for a visa, uh, sign up with an agency. And then uh, my first choice was to go to Jeju because I watched um, a 30 minute travel show 
and there was this uh, British uh, adventurer. He was in Jeju. Uh, it looks like they called it the Hawaii of Korea. So I was thinking, well, I'll go to Jeju. That sounds great. Unfortunately, there weren't many jobs in Jeju. And then I thought, well, Busan looks good. The beaches, not too many jobs in Busan. And the agency I was signed up with, um, even though I gave them my recommendations, what I wanted, every week they'd be like, how about this job in Seoul? I was like, no, no, it's okay. Next two days. How about this job in Seoul? Finally, I said, look, it looks like it'll never happen in Jeju or Busan. So I accepted the job in Seoul. And uh, yeah, then it was... uh, the big adventure started all the way to Korea. Well, how long a process was that sort of sorting out where you could actually go? Uh, I think I think it was about six months. Um, wow! I was finished. I was finishing up my uh, teacher training, you know, the CELTA equivalent, mm-hmm. um, and then going through the agency and the, all the paperwork. I don't know if it's still the same. I imagine it still is, or worse. Uh, where being in England, you need the criminal background check. You've got to get all your university diplomas, apostilled. Um, there's all these things you have to go through. And so, um, yeah, I remember, and that was more time consuming the first time because I had never done it before. Now I can get these documents quite quickly. A, a criminal background check in the UK can be done in two weeks uh, oh, wow. from applying. So that can be very fast. Apostilles, if you know how to do it, uh, can be quite cheap and can be done quickly. But First time, I had no idea, so I had to go see a solicitor, get my documents signed, get the apostille, and it took uh, quite a long time. A good, it felt like six months. It might have been a little bit less, but it felt like a long time. I just couldn't wait to get that. This is all while you're still in England. Yeah, I was still in England. Um, this was, Yeah, I was finishing that CELTA equivalent. Uh, I think it was maybe spring of 2010. Um, I just got back from Barcelona and it was like, okay, now I'm ready. I'm going to go out there. And then I chose Korea. Uh, and it was a, a very good decision in the end, but uh, it wasn't easy to begin with. Let's put it that way. Well, let's take our listeners back to that first year, that those, those, those heady times. <laughs> yes. How did you survive or thrive in that first year? What was that like? Uh, well, you say survival fire, I think both. It was definitely survival when I first arrived because I had never taught a class before and I was still call myself an introvert now, but at least in the classroom, I'm much more outgoing now. I know how to relate with students, know how to interact. I know how to build rapport. But when I first came to Korea as a teacher, I had none of that. I probably had some of the worst... Uh, teaching skills in Korea in 2010. <laughs> uh, I remember it was my first day in the Hogwan. I don't think uh, the Hogwan I was teaching expected my style. They didn't really know because they knew I had a master's degree. They knew I had that CELTA equivalent, but they, I guess they didn't know how bad I was at connecting with students. And so I remember even my, still have a very clear memory, going into my first classroom didn't really know what to do. I had, I think, 10 uh, children there. I guess they were all about eight years old. And now as a teacher, I know you're supposed to go into the classroom. Hello, everyone. Nice to meet you. My name's Wayne. Let me introduce myself. I can't wait to teach you. You know, you really show how much it means, how much you want to teach them. I Mm -hmm. still remember I walked in. There was a podium there. It was a hog one, but there was a podium, elevated platform for some reason. 
So I go in, I don't say hello, I don't introduce myself. I think this is what I'm supposed to do. I open the textbook, okay, turn to page three or whatever it was. <laughs> and uh, that was that was a very bad idea because I did that in all my classes. And of course, I had no rapport with the students. One of the class had some behavioral issues, uh, maybe because I didn't build rapport. I also didn't know uh, to play games with students. I'd never learned that in my in my training, I didn't do that in Barcelona, mm. so I had never thought about playing games really. Um, so I thought, and the Hog one was very s- specific. They were like, just use the textbook. Don't deviate from the textbook. And so I didn't. I went in, here's the textbook, that's what I'm doing. Uh, so for free classes, I think the students kind of grinned and bared it. Like, okay, we've got this horrible, boring teacher, but let's get on with it. <laughs> uh, but one class, I think they rebelled a little bit and... Um, they were a little bit more unruly. They would not want to study. They would kind of throw things around a little bit. Sounds like fun. It wasn't fun <laughs> for me. Maybe for them, yes. Yeah. Uh, but I remember after the first two weeks, I didn't know how bad things were. I thought it was like, maybe this is normal. I don't know. Um, I was called into the director's office, and there was a head teacher there. He was actually from from England. He was a British head teacher in the Hogwarts. Mm-hmm. And there was a Korean head teacher as well for the Korean staff. But he called me in and he said, well, I've got some bad news, Wayne. And I was like, uh-oh, what is it? And he, it's like, it looks like a job interview. He puts this letter down in front of me. And he said, well, we'll need you to sign this. Please give it a read. And then uh, we need to acknowledge you have received this. And I looked down. It's a very official letter. It's typed up. It's got all the it's got the header and everything of the, the hog one. Uh, but I, I don't remember all the sentences, but I do remember the first part. And it said, dear Mr. Finley... Uh, you are being warned that you are a boring teacher. Uh, and then I think the next sentence was like, "You also, you have not been able to control your classes or something like that. But the one that stuck with me was the boring teacher after just two That's weeks. gotta hurt. Oh. And he said, well, I said, to, I think I said to him, do I have to sign it? Because it had my name at the bottom. Like it was expecting a sin. He said, well, that's, he said, that's your choice, but... Would you just need to acknowledge that you have read this letter? Uh, this is your first like official warning, official mm-hmm. reprimand letter. Um, if I get two more, then I am gone. Oh, I see. And I and I thought after just two weeks, I've already got one. I'm a boring teacher. How? It felt like the end of my stay in career. Let's just put it that way. I went to yeah. my coworkers. I think they. Didn't have my um, CELTA equivalent training. Uh, they didn't have a master's degree, but they just knew how to relate to the students at that point a lot more than I did. So they didn't have too many problems, even though it was, I guess, quite a strict hog one. There was CCTV in the cam- in the classroom and mm. the, the director and one of the Korean head teachers was always watching, making sure that things were going well. Uh, but yeah, I remember going to the co-workers and it became like a running joke at the end of every day. We'd finish about 10 p.m. Like... Have you got another write-up? Write-up today? Got another one? <laughs> Are you leaving yet? And it, I remember it, it, it feel, it's quite nice looking back because of where I've come since then. But at the time, it was, uh, let's just say, very very upsetting. I remember, I think it was the next day I was in a, a coffee shop because the hog one was on like the sixth floor. It was one of these office tell buildings. Right. Uh, on the ground floor was a coffee shop. I remember going in there with my uh, laptop, typing up. Like, 
what do I do if I, if I cannot be a teacher and I want to see the world? What do I do? So I was looking at volunteering, uh, all these wow. different options, and I think I would have been let go because it was just a very bad start, very bad first impression. Uh, but I got a, I think I got a little bit fortunate because the hog one I was working for was connected to a chain of hog ones. It was one of these big uh, hog one franchises, right? Um, and it was a brand new hog one. It was like a new campus they call it they just opened it up so we were all new teachers there mm-hmm. uh, about two weeks later we were we had these meetings every week uh, once a week me and the other teachers the other foreign teachers were called into a room and the the british head teacher said uh, we have an opening up at another hog one about a few subway stops down the line if anybody is interested please let me know and for me i thought the writing was on the wall i'm gonna get kicked out anyway <laughs> It didn't take me too long. As soon as I got home, I was like, do I apply? Yes, I do. The next day I went and talked to him and I said, let me go. I want to go to this hog one. I want to get out of here. Uh, I think this would be good for me. And I still had to wait then another two weeks. Thankfully, they confirmed and said, okay, we will move you to that hog one because they wanted to bring an experienced teacher from the other hog one. So it was an exchange. Oh, I see. And I think if that didn't happen... With that director and that hog one, maybe I wouldn't have been in Korea longer than just a few months. Uh, because there was another teacher at the same one who was also given a warning letter. And he was let go after six months. Right. Uh, he was said, you're out of here. you got to go. Uh, so I wonder if I would have been able to turn things around at that specific hog one if I had st- stayed there. Because it was very... Um, the conditions were very difficult. As I said, CCTV cameras... All the feedback was usually very negative. There weren't many positives. Uh, I didn't really know what to do. I had never. Ex- I didn't really have a chance to experiment. And I think the only way I turned things around was when I moved to that next hog one, uh, where I felt like I had no way of staying in Korea unless I changed the way I taught. I mm-hmm. changed my personality in the classroom and I started taking risks. And so by going to this next hog one, it gave me kind of a fresh start. Right. Uh, so this time I said, I'm going in. I was researching every day different games to play with the students, how to build rapport. I was doing all this kind of homework in my free time. And so when I came into this new hog one, I was a completely different teacher, I would say. Like even one teacher, he said, hey, try to use a funny voice. They're kids. Use a funny voice. And up until that point, I had quite... Um, I guess a monotone teaching voice. Right. Then I was like trying to do funny voices when I'm teaching. Maybe a little bit overboard sometimes. But hey, you gotta if you want to survive, that's what you gotta do sometimes. You know, mm-hmm. just you know take the uh, the reins off and just really go for it. Uh, and that's what I did for the next few months in that next hog one. Just tried everything to see if it worked, to see if I could be a teacher, see if I could stay in Korea. And thankfully, all the games I was experimenting with. Every day, different flashcard games we were playing. Um, all the voices, all this. And I think just naturally I was getting better at talking to students, connecting with them. So thankfully then I was able to stay in that hog one. And then uh, things changed completely. A few months later, again, we were all called into the office. And that Korean director, she said, we have a brand new hog one campus opening up in Busan. I was in Seoul. 
There's another one opening in Busan. We need an experienced teacher. Would anybody be interested? Right. And I thought, I thought I was only going to be in Korea for one year. And so I thought, wait a second, I've already moved one time. I've been in Seoul for six months. Hey, now I can move to a campus as the experienced teacher rather than the, the, the failure, the reject. Right. Uh, and, and so I said, <laughs> let me go. And um, then two weeks later, I was on the train down to Busan, the KTX. Right. And then uh, f- things were like completely different. I remember going down there, the, the headquarters had said to this new Hagwon in Busan, we are sending our best teacher from Seoul. Which there's no way they that was they would know that because they had never seen me teach. There was no cameras in there. They were just it was the marketing spin. Right. And so when I arrived, I was a bit like a celebrity. The director was like, "Follow me. Is there anything you need? Please let us know. Please train us. Please teach us." And so then I felt like an imposter. Like they don't know that I'm actually not a very good teacher. They're going to find out as soon as I start teaching. But I think by that point, my skills were good enough to pass. So.、Um, Yeah, it was a very strange first year. Would it be fair to say that when you first came, you know, you were concentrating or focusing on what you, who you were at the front of the class, and what you needed to teach? And then, as time went by, you started to pay attention more to the kids, and from their feedback, determined, you know, this is what I should do or what I shouldn't do. I would guess partly yes. I was more self-conscious when I first started. Like, am I doing、sure. right? I'm judging myself more. Right. I think also just I had zero public speaking experience as well. I don't know in other countries, but in universities in the UK, depending on the course,、uh, most courses you teach, you don't really do presentations, you don't lead sessions, you don't lead workshops or anything like that. So when I trained to be a teacher, it was extremely frightening every day. I remember Barcelona, I was like in hot sweat sometimes, thinking, "Oh my gosh, I've got to stand in front of." People and talk to them and tell them what to do and teach them, and so I had a little bit of that in Barcelona. But these were kind of volunteer students. Some were they were all retired. They were in the sixties, seventies,、mm-hmm. completely different world teaching young Korean children. Right. And so I think a lot of it was I just had no idea what I was doing.、Um, I had the theory because I'd studied one hundred and eighty hours of it.、Mm-hmm. Um, maybe if I'd just started teaching adults, I could have got by. Maybe it wouldn't have been such an issue. I think because、um, I wouldn't have had to interact and build rapport as much. I guess,、uh, but going straight into a hog one where it's probably one of the most demanding English teaching jobs because it's about results, it's about bringing students, keeping students, making money.、Uh, right. Primarily,、uh, it was like being dropped into a cauldron where you're ever gonna. Sink? Are you going to swim? And I was definitely sinking for the first few months, and then I started swimming.、Uh, but I think partly it's just being able to let go, like not right, hold right. back. A lot of times, I think as a new teacher, you go into the classroom, and it's just you're so reserved. I and maybe if you're doing a presentation for the first time, let's say in Kotiso, sometimes I see new presenters. It looks like they're second guessing themselves. Like, am I doing this right? Did I say the right thing? Am I saying the wrong thing? Is this funny? Is it not funny? Sure. Um, whereas I see a lot of the best teachers I watch or the best presenters, it looks like they're not thinking at all. They're just kind of in this flow. They're just in the moment, and I think that's what I was able to do after a few months to get to that point where you're comfortable in who you are, what you're doing, and I think that、um, connects with the students. Well, I was going to ask you about being a shy kid because I, I saw 
I think it was one of your presentations. You were, it was a practice video I saw on YouTube, and you mentioned that you were a shy kid growing up. And and yeah. I I wanted to ask you. So who was the you know the the teacher that turned you around, broke you out of your shell? But it sounds like you never really did until you got dropped into this hogwan here in Korea. Yeah, I think for for me anyway. Most people who grow up shy, I don't think it's one person or a teacher because. Mm. Teachers used to say that all the time. I remember I was, let's say, four, five, six, going all the way into high school. Uh, on those parents' evenings, the teacher would never give any feedback and say, except they would always say, Wayne needs to start speaking. Wayne needs to speak more. He's too shy. And I, that feedback doesn't really help. It doesn't magically say, oh, i got to speak more. Okay, I'll stop being shy now. There we are. I'll be an, I'll be an, I'll be an outgoing extrovert tomorrow. That doesn't really happen. I think overcoming shyness is about realizing that a lot of what you say and what you do isn't judged that much. It's not that important. Uh, you're allowed to make mistakes. Usually the personality you've got is good enough. Um, I think a lot of shy people out there, they a bit like you might, when I was a teacher, you second-guess yourself as a teacher. I think a lot of pe- shy people would second-guess their personalities like I'm not, I'm not interesting enough, or I'm not funny enough, or I don't tell interesting stories, and so I think that's what a lot of shy. And for me, just overcoming the shyness in general was, I think, a little bit like when I was teaching, just learning to take those risks. Because I remember, you know, being a, a teenager, I would be quite worried about just walking into a room of people. Um, uh-huh. Like I would be wondering, oh my God, what what could go wrong? What could somebody ask me? You'd, a lot of shy people, they it's like they're doing a lesson plan for every social situation. Uh, like, what could so and so ask me today? What happens if they, it's like they're preparing for every possibility of a mistake to try and prevent the mistake? And so when they go into that social situation, it's it's like they're being observed. It's like one of those teaching observations. Uh, where like everything is being scrutinized. Sorry, it, it must have been a doubly terrifying for you then to have cameras. Mm. Are you being watched in your first Hagwon? You know, they actually uh, are watching you. Well, there was that. There was part of that, and I think part of part of why I became a teacher in general was I thought, well, I've come so far in overcoming this shyness. What else could I do to overcome it? Because I always thought I could never be a teacher. I thought. I don't have the personality, I'm too shy, or and I think naturally I'm an introvert as well, I do like to spend a lot of time uh, by myself naturally, I'm just not shy about it anymore. Um, so yeah, I think partly becoming a teacher was also this wanting to achieve this goal of overcome this shyness and not worry and see if I could do it. And yeah, being dropped in there into the Hogwan was about the biggest trial by fire you could have, because this Hogwan... Yeah. Uh, you had the CCTV camera, which was always being watched. Uh, even my, I think my second class I taught in there, uh, the head teacher came in with an actual video camera, uh, set it up at the back of the classroom. Uh, once a week in the Hogwan, we had to watch ourselves on video. We had to go to the director's office, and there were these, it was almost like one of the, you see on these movies where like a department director's watching all the, uh, the CCTV screens. So I would have to go in and they would rewind one of my classes and I would have to sit there. Uh, but actually, because I w- when you're shy, you're usually very negative. I would watch these videos and, you know, it wasn't great teaching. But I think, oh, actually, it's not that bad. I thought it was much worse than that. 
Oh, actually, yeah. I don't look. I don't look too nervous. Actually, I'm, I'm not shaking or anything. And I think that's what I discovered. Um, even when I did the practice in Barcelona, when I was extremely nervous, um, mm-hmm. even when I felt very shy or very nervous, uh, often I didn't look nervous, so I didn't look that shy. And I think that's the same for a lot of people. You'll see sometimes in Cotisol, a presenter will start like, "Oh, sorry, everyone, I'm a, I'm, I'm very nervous," mm-hmm. and you're thinking, "You don't look nervous. Are you kidding?" Yeah, um, yeah, and I think that's true. You might feel nervous, but you learn actually you don't always look nervous, um, right? Um, well, so I think that helps a lot of shy people. They think they're a, they look like a nervous wreck, uh, so the camera, the video footage can help a lot. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've given a, a kind of an inside look at what it's like to be a shy person and become somebody who's quite successful. Uh, uh, you know, in in teaching, um, in in twenty twenty, I don't know if this still holds, but in for the year twenty twenty, you're the yeah. Cotisol National Publicity Chair. Yep, yeah, I that's still true. Yeah, and the Cotisol Teacher Training Coordinator. Yeah, um, and I, I know on the Cotisol website, uh, our listeners can go and have a look, but there's a, a list of the teacher training topics there mm-hmm. that the. Uh, KTT, I guess it's called, uh, offers, uh, and it's very impressive. And and I kind of imagine that the uh, computer-assisted language learning might sort of see a spike in interest after our keynote speaker, uh, Gerd Leonard, speaks uh, at the international conference next month. Yeah. But right now, I'm, I'm kind of curious about your second Cotisol position, the National Publicity Chair. Um, what does a Cotisol Publicity Chair do? What does, what does publicity at Cotisol even look like? Uh, Well, I think to break it down to its simplest form, publicity is making sure people know about Cotisol and are interested in becoming members and interested in attending events. Uh, Because Cotisol, when I I think about Cotisol, of course, we have the the website, we have lots of, we have the publications, we have the English Connection, we have the journal. But for me, Cotisol is all about the workshops, the conferences, the presentations, and so my main job in publicity is to constantly get the word out, get the message out that, hey, look, this is a, a fantastic organization. It's very active and there's huge reasons why you should uh, become a member. A little bit easier when there's no coronavirus pandemic because yeah. before the pandemic, like every, it feels it feels like almost every weekend there's a great workshop. You can go to one in Jeonju or Busan or Seoul, often taking place at the same time. Right. And so it's the publicity is very easy. It's just you go on Facebook, you go on Twitter, LinkedIn. We have a a channel there too, or YouTube. We have a YouTube channel and uh, get the message out, promote the event. And I think I'm very lucky in Cotisol because uh, if I was, let's say I'm working for a company and I'm selling uh, a product which is not very interesting, I'm sure it'd be a lot more difficult. But Cotisol, I think if you're a teacher and you're very passionate about education, Cotisol is natural. You're naturally attracted to Cotisol. All I have to do is basically relay what is happening in Cotisol and uh, people are drawn to it. Of course, I do put a lot of work into it. As the publicity chair, I'm the head of the publicity committee. Uh, so we have a few people on board who will help out with different channels or creating content like writing articles, creating graphics, making videos, or maybe making podcasts like this. Um, so they do things like that. But yeah, I think it's uh, it's not too difficult doing publicity. But we do do a lot of work. 
um, like keeping on top of the news, making sure it's always uh, publicized. I've asked this of uh, some of my previous guests because I think it's a concern uh, myself being a new person to Cotiso. I I just sort of stumbled in a few times over the years. Uh, I've stumbled into Cotiso conferences yeah. and I've always enjoyed them, but just never really got involved for one reason or another. But I think that there's a, such a, an opportunity, I, I guess, for people like yourself when you first came to Korea mm. that it really would have been fantastic to have Cotisol yeah. as a resource right there for you. So uh, I don't know if this is a publicity role or not, but can Cotisol do a better job, I don't know, of, of, of reaching those first-year uh, well, people? Well, of course. I think everybody can do a better job. And uh, part of the committee is always trying to seek feedback and improve. Uh, actually, at the in this is my job, one of my roles at the International Conference. Uh, I won't be doing a, a presentation this year. Previously, I've done different topics, teacher training. Uh, this time, I'm running in a, uh, a workshop for p- the Publicity Committee, and what I want to do is encourage anybody listening, if they are interested in working with the Publicist Committee or just creating content or getting involved or if they think they have some new ideas that we, we have not explored, uh, I encourage them to come to this uh, meeting we have during the International Conference. It will be on an evening. I don't know the exact date yet, but it will be an evening. It will be on Zoom. Uh, okay. Come along and say, hey, I'm interested in joining the committee. I have some new, new ideas. I think I have a fresh approach. Um, like even just a few weeks ago, I was approached by uh, a Cotisol member. And she said, hey, I've noticed something. And I said, oh, really? Sure. Tell me, what is it? I, I'd love to hear any suggestion. Sure. And um, she said, well, we there is no official Cotisol TikTok account. And I thought, TikTok? I thought TikTok was like this dancing app where you like record yourself on a phone dancing to music. So I, I, I had not even I had not even thought about making a Cotisol like dancing uh, profile. But then I, and I looked into it. No, TikTok is not just dancing videos. Actually, it's kind of like um, YouTube, but the videos are much shorter. So rather than you have YouTube where you can watch like a documentary or a five ten minute video. TikTok is like really short videos, usually 30 seconds, one minute. Hmm. Um, And when I looked into it, actually a lot of companies, a lot of official uh, organizations like Cotiso, they have TikTok accounts. And so when she said that, I said, wow, that sounds great. How how do we create an account? So she created the account. And uh, I'm very happy she's also now our official TikTok manager. Wow. Um, So if there's anything you've, anyone out there thinks Cotisol could be doing or is not doing or they have just a great idea, reach out. We're not one of, we're not one of those committees uh, in maybe in different companies where feedback is like, thank you for your feedback, now go away. Ours is very much, thank you for your feedback, let's see how we can use it to improve Cotisol. Because remember, Cotisol is all about volunteers. I'm a volunteer. Right. Uh, everyone I know is a volunteer. And so if you want to volunteer... Come join. That's what we are. We are volunteers. In terms of reaching out to first-year teachers, uh, we've mm-hmm. discussed this a lot, even, uh, I guess, two years now, because we didn't meet in 2020. At the end of 2019, uh, we had a publicity committee session where we invited anybody to join. This was at the 
Team Building and Connections Day. I think it was December, end of November or December 2019, uh, where we did a whole workshop discussing ideas. How can we get more public school teachers? How can we get more Hogwarts teachers? How can we just all these different groups who were sitting there brainstorming um, a lot. In terms of first-year teachers, if they are in a public school, it's a little bit easier because there's channels you can go through. Uh, public school teachers, Epic, they tend to join particular social media groups, either on Facebook or LinkedIn. If they have a LinkedIn account, it's easy to reach out to them. Uh, before our national conference last year, I spent many hours on an eve each evening messaging Epic teachers on LinkedIn because you can go on LinkedIn and you can just click on Epic and it will tell you hundreds and hundreds of teachers who are teaching in Epic. And so I remember just spending very meticulously, hello, my name is Wayne, would you be interested? It's a great conference. And so I managed to persuade a, a number of people who didn't even know about Cotiso to come to our national conference, oh, um, very good. which was online last year. Hog One, though, is the most difficult they there's not a particular place where Hogwan teachers tend to go. I remember my first year didn't really well in terms of me I didn't really have social media, but in terms of Hogwan, there's not real can you think of a Hogwan group where if you're a Hogwan teacher you would join this group? Um if anybody can think of one, I'd love to hear it. Well I, I don't I, I agree with you. I don't think there is one for the teachers, but I, I'm guessing there would be some organization for the owners. The people that run the hogwans. Yeah, there is, but this is all. This has also come up in meetings. People have worked in publicity previously. Have said they've reached out to this hogwan association, but for for a few different reasons, there's a reluctance to encourage cotisol membership among their hogwan teachers. Uh, rightly or wrongly, I think this is wrong because most conferences, most workshops I go to. It's not really like a union. We're not a union. We're not encouraging people to fight for their rights, fight for their salary. They're not most of the, almost every presentation I go to is about teaching development, how to become a better yes. teacher. Yes. Unfortunately, there is an image amongst among some Hogwarts owners that if their teachers join Cotisol, it might become difficult to manage them. Uh, because well, they will have they'll have all this knowledge, all this information. They will start questioning why is this in the contract? Why is this here? Why is this here? Why is this here? And so, in That's the past, when when we've reached when the public committees have reached out, it's almost been like a, a dead end. So we've all we've had to explore other ways to reach out. Social media is the big one because everybody nowadays has some kind mm. of social media account somewhere. Um, so we make sure it's always out there on social media. Um, we Another big factor is just scheduling um, presentations, workshops that are naturally appealing to Hogwarts teachers. In the past, I, this is not true anymore, but in the past, uh, Cotiso was sometimes thought of as like, it's only for university teachers. All the mm -hmm. presentations are for university teachers. Uh, over the last few years, I think that has changed a lot. Um, every event I see, yeah. even the last one I attended, uh, I think it was the Youngin event actually I attended, uh, was like, this is for Hogwarts teachers. This would be useful. This would be useful. Mm -hmm. And so any Hogwarts teacher out there would find Cotisol very interesting. I think another factor that makes it a bit difficult is the scheduling. Uh, yeah. Some Hogwarts teach on Saturdays. Uh, when I taught in the Hogwarts, I taught from 2 p.m. until 10 p.m., 
and my weekends were sacred. The idea of me kind of doing anything other than fair enough <laughs> ed- watch enjoy my TV time on a weekend or go out and explore because I might not be here for very long depending on my plans. Every weekend I was out exploring, just enjoying my TV. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's a lot of factors that make Hogwarts teachers the most difficult group to uh, bring to Cotiso. But we, we never stop trying. We keep trying of course to think not. of new yeah. ways. So if anybody out there has an idea, please share us. We'll, we'll explore it. Yeah. Well, it sounds like as far as the Hogwans go, uh, I think the social media is uh, definitely something that uh, you have to pay attention to. But as far as attracting Hogwan owners, getting their attention, it, uh, it sounds like it's an education thing. You know, And it's, that just takes time, I think, and repetitive to sort of sway a few yeah, to come over to your side. I think eventually the we've always worked. The image of Cotisol will change to what it currently is, which is like it's an organization welcome to every teacher with with uh, tr- sessions for teachers from any background. And we are not a union. We're not trying to <laughs> uh, disrupt all these hogwans and schools by creating unruly teachers. Well, you heard it here first, folks. We are not a union. <laughs> That's yes. good. Good to know. Um, I'm a little sad that you're not going to be presenting, but uh, glad that you that you are trying to get more people to uh, to give you some ideas and doing the uh, the workshop, the publicity workshop. But your your list of presentations and your uh, activities at Cotisol, it's its quite an impressive list. I imagine it looks fab- fabulous on a resume. Well, I i don't put all of it nowadays because I, I think I've never counted how many how many Cotisol presentations. I think I've done maybe 15, maybe. So uh, and all on different topics as well. So that has been a lot of work because I never do the same presentation more than once. Oh. That not for some philosophical reason, like I will never repeat my work. Um, <laughs> it's just, I honestly, as a presenter, I when I present, I is I'm not usually doing it for the resume. Uh, I do it really because I enjoy it. Um, so when I present, it's because I have something I really want to share and I really want to explore uh, with other teachers. So the reason you'll almost never see me do the same one twice is because for me, it, it's not that interesting to do the same one again. It's like, it's, I want to move on to something new. Let's do something new. Oh. Um, unfortunately, you do get to a point, though, where you've covered so many topics. It's like, <laughs> well, what's the next topic? I think I've done everything. And also, because I've done so many now, um, there was a time when I first joined Cotisol and I did my first ever presentation. I think this was at the end of 2014, November. Uh, I was like, I became almost addicted. Like, I want to do more. This is so exciting. So I remember, apply- I think I emailed like every chapter president hey, do you need any presenters? Do you need any presenter? And I think in 2015, I did like five presentations, uh, 2016, a few more. And then it's, and then nowadays, I'm like, I've done, I think I've done enough presentations. Now I'm a little bit more selective. Well, well can I ask you then a question? People who are just, they think, yeah, I'm not going to do a presentation. It's, it's too scary. What is the process? If I'm going to go and apply to do a presentation. What does that process look like? What are the expectations? Can you just give me a quick run through? Well, the first thing I should say to anyone who is reluctant, I know public speaking is supposed to be the number one fear and different sort of show it. Um, And I hear a lot of teachers say, well, uh, I have no, because teachers do public speaking every day with their students. They say, well, it's different presenting to teachers versus students. 
what I would say is a bit like when I was talking about when I was shy. I think the vast majority of teachers in the audience are not scrutinizing everything you say. Uh, if you make a mistake, you can correct it, or I'm sure they'll bring it up at the end. That's happened with me a couple of times. Like, hey, are you sure about that? And I say, oh, really? Thanks for thanks for telling me. That's very good feedback. What I've noticed, because I used to be so a little bit nervous. I remember before my first national conference presentation, I didn't sleep very well. I was like tossing and turning all night. Oh my gosh, how many sure. people are going to be there? Fifty people. It's a national conference. It's like it's like the football World Cup the next day. <laughs> uh, but then I didn't sleep, but then I went in, it was 4 p.m., it was in Seoul, Sukmyong Women's University, did a presentation, and I, I was really in my in flow, actually. I was very happy with how it went. Uh, but afterwards, I realized, and it can be a good presentation or a bad presentation, nothing too much changes afterwards. Like, mm. you kind of, in your head, you build it up to this huge moment in your life, like I'm doing a big presentation or... Even when I did a TEDx talk a few years ago, you think, wow, everything changes afterwards. But then you realize afterwards, it's like, okay, what are you doing for dinner? Who's getting coffee? It's like, <laughs> what, what's next in the program book? It's like, what about my presentation? You, you're not going to say anything? I just did this incredible, I just had this incredible event in my life. But everybody afterwards is like, okay. Or they might, if you're lucky, they'll say, oh, that was really interesting. Thank you very much. Often that happens, but most of the time life goes on. And I think, for anyone who's really nervous, they need to know doing a presentation isn't that big of a deal. It's not something that will change your life. Now, it might be good for your resume. It will give you valuable skills, which I think mm-hmm. helped me when I've applied for jobs or applied to do the TEDx talk, for example. Uh, but nothing like the world doesn't, the sky doesn't open up after you do a presentation. Of course, the first one you do will not be your best one. You will not be as confident as you will be later. You won't be as well organized. Maybe your PPT that you're using isn't as good as it could be. And that's what you have to do. After your first one, it shouldn't be this all or nothing approach. That was amazing. I'm perfect. Or that was terrible. I'll never present again. It should be, okay, I've done what, like when you teach a class. Okay, that, did that go well? Yeah, I did. But oh, I should have done that. I, I was too nervous. I spoke too fast in that part. Or, wow, I thought that they didn't really understand this question I gave them. Or... I think that's my advice, is not worry so much about the process before your first one, because there is no right process. Everybody will, you know, make a PPT. I don't write scripts, for example. Uh, My first presentation, I didn't even practice because I didn't know to do that, really. I had no experience. Uh So so I went in blind. I just had my PPT. And in your head, you're kind of, again, when it's your first one, you're thinking, the first thing I always worry about is time. Like, will it last long enough? Because I remember in Barcelona, the last class I taught, most of them went okay. But the last one, I messed up the end of the the class. I finished 10 minutes early. Wow. Um, because there was supposed to be a group of, let's say, four or five students. I only had one student. Oh, um, wow. All right. And I'd never had that situation before. And I had this team activity planned for the last... 15 minutes like a game and I thought I'll do this if I finish too early and then I'm standing there being observed by like four people it was the only time it ever happened in my career never happened since because I learned from it I realized there's 10 minutes left I've already tried this game with this student I can't go any longer it would look like madness I thought and I said okay I'm finished oh. and and then I went to the back and sat down and then in my feedback it was like you can never finish too early you are paid 
if it's, this is a real job, you are paid to teach to the last minute. Yeah, yeah. And so that's always my main worry. Any class or any presentation I give, it's not, oh my gosh, do I look nervous or is my PBT good or will it? It's like, will I? Do I have enough? And so for many years afterwards, I probably prepared too much. Like, do I have extra worksheets? Do I have an extra game? If it's a presentation, do I have an extra question I could ask? Could I do a longer Q and A? Mm-hmm. So that's uh, for a number of years. That was my main concern. I think you're really uh, going to, uh, or some people listening are going to think, well, I feel a lot better. Just simply you saying, "Not I didn't," you know, started without a script because a script is such a, you know, a safety net for many people. Yeah. And the fact that you went in without, and that some people just don't use a script, uh, I think that's going to make some people feel well, a bit I, more confident. I only, I only tried a script one time, and it was the worst presentation I ever gave. And, oh, so uh, that's out. <laughs> so I'll never, I'll never using a script again. Though, for me, it's impossible to memorize. I can do it at home. If you, if you give me, let's say, five pages to memorize, I can memorize it, and I can, I could do it in front of the mirror. One time I ever tried it, uh, it was a TEDx audition. Actually, I remember standing in front of the judges trying to recite it. For ten minutes, I was okay. It was a twenty-minute presentation. Ten minutes, I was okay, and then I saw one of the the audition judges, he turned his head to look at the other judge, you know, like like they make a comment. Yes. And I was in my head, I'm trying to remember this script and it was going well, you know, because I practiced so many times. Mm-hmm. But when he turned his head, my mind went to, oh, what is he, what is he saying? What is he thinking? Sure. <laughs> and then where was I? I had no idea whatsoever. Yeah, and it's, then it's gone. Yeah. The, ne- the next minute was the longest minute of my life in that audition because I froze like I had no idea what to do next and the judge was like you know just calm down get get back on it thankfully I managed to pick it up about a minute later but oh good <laughs> I did see your TEDx talk it was good uh thank you uh, the audition wasn't wasn't so good uh, <laughs> but good enough to pass good enough to get to the next round well, I was going to ask you about presentations, which ones uh, sort of resonated the most with your audience, thinking that you did some presentations repeatedly. But even, I guess, of all the ones you've done, is there any one that stands out as having really resonated with the with the, the audience? It can be, like I was saying, it can be difficult because unless you ask for feedback, oftentimes as a new presenter, you won't get it. Like. If you like I said, you'll usually if you're fortunate, one or two people might walk to the podium where would know where you are at the end and say, Oh, that was great, thank you very much. And it's always fantastic when you get that kind of feedback. It feels like like you, all the effort, all the all the work you put into it was worth it. Right. What I've noticed is this was my first time I my first presentation I did on building rapport in Daejeon. And a few months later I was at that national conference. It was six months later actually. I was at the national conference, you know, nervously waiting to do my presentation. And uh, a teacher came up to me and he said, oh, I remember you. And I was like, oh, really? Where do you remember me from? And he said, oh, you're the Doctor Who guy. And I was like, oh, in my presentation in Daejeon, I used the theme of like Doctor Who because I I was giving the message of building rapport. And I was saying every teacher has different personalities but all of them can connect with students. And I remember showing how, if you know, if you're familiar with the TV show Doctor Who, each of the doctors in the show, the different protagonists, all usually have different personalities. And I remember playing like the Doctor Who music. And so 
that resonated. And then that was the first moment I thought, oh, somebody remembered my presentation. Because until then, I thought it was like in one ear and out the other. And then a few months after that, another guy said, oh, I, a similar, I remember you. I was like, why do you remember me? You're the Bjork guy. That's Bjork. what I remember, yeah. <laughs> oh, really? You were that? I don't know. No, I wasn't there, but I, I saw the, uh, you mentioned it in, uh, I guess, in a, one of the bios I read. And I checked it. Oh, uh, really? <laughs> yeah, and uh, he, was, he was like, oh, he's like, and usually when they say that, they say they don't really remember the message or the content so much, because I think that's most presentations. Whether we like it or not, they tend to remember, people just remember a little bit. Uh, and there's that saying, isn't it? People don't remember what you say. It's like what you, how you made them feel. Exactly. And I think that's often what happened. He said, oh, I remember that. I can't remember what it was about, but I remember it was really good. Oh, well, that's that's the that's what I'm thinking when I say resonates with an audience. That's exactly you know how you made them if you got them to feel something and they let you know about it. And the, I guess the one from Cotis that resonated most was probably my international conference presentation 2017, uh, where I did a very uh, active workshop where I got the teachers out of their seats, moving around, doing all very active stuff. Uh, that was I think I called it. I think I called the topic immersive speaking environments. And so I was just showing teachers when you give students speaking practice time. So a lot of teachers, they'll say, you know, talk about sports for five minutes, talk about food for five minutes. Um, What I explored in my teaching was what if we do that, but we role play it like they are in a real place. So like if you are giving them a small talk practice, for example, how about we change the layout of the classroom to look like a coffee shop and play coffee shop music in the background and maybe even bring in some cheap coffee and say, look, now I want you to have a conversation. You are in a coffee shop and you act like you're the barista in the coffee shop or something like that. And I found students really enjoy it. They forget how scary the speaking practice is. They don't worry about mistakes. They think, I'm in a coffee shop. Wow, this is really interesting. And so I tried that. Uh, I think I tried it with a coffee shop. I tried it with a British pub. And I teach university students now, not children. Yes. So that's okay. <laughs> Different situations. And uh, I that was what I showed the teachers and I demonstrated it. And even a few years later, I remember some teachers coming up saying, oh, I remember that. That was I re- that really helped me a lot. Uh, really, I've been using that a lot in my classes. Well, that is fantastic. I mean, that's got to feel really good from the shy guy that you were and to have people saying, wow, you're fantastic, that you made some difference in in a teacher's life has got to feel pretty good. Well, I think it does. I think if maybe, I don't know, because I I grew up shy, so I don't know the opposite, but maybe (laughs) if I'd grown up very confident and then I gave a confident presentation or I gave a memorable presentation, uh, maybe I'd be like, of course, of course, that would be natural, but... Uh, growing up uh, very shy and having no public speaking experience, almost getting you know let go from my hogwan job in the first few months. I think m- nowadays when I do a presentation or I teach a, a good class, uh, it does feel a little bit more rewarding because I remember how difficult it was, how much, uh, how much some of the feed, how bad some of the feedback was at the beginning, all the bad moments, and mm. so now when I experience these better moments it, i think it does feel very rewarding it feels like if you play a video game and you started on the hardest difficulty and you struggle you struggle you can't play the game and then finally you keep practicing and now you think hey this game is pretty easy now i really enjoy this game 
uh, it does feel more rewarding. There's that journey. Well, that's a nice segue right into my final question, which is what do you do with your free time? Uh, free time, it depends. Um, when I'm teaching, like right now I'm very lucky, I'm in a university job. So mm-hmm. uh, in this particular job, I either get all of summer off or all of winter off. I don't get both off. I see. Um, but, but because I did a lot of teaching in the summer, now I am free And usually I don't get this kind of free time. Uh, So, of course, I have to keep doing Cotiso work. That is uh, a weekly job. It never stops. Publicity, there's always events, always news. So Mm -hmm. um, even this morning, I was getting the news out about um, a chapter event, Daegu and Busan. Uh, Make sure it's on the social media channels. Make sure people know about it. Make sure they can sign up if they're interested. But uh, when I'm not doing Cotiso or I'm not teaching full-time, not preparing lessons... Uh, I like to make videos now. I've moved into making videos, so this is a part away from Cotisol. Like this is a your own thing. Uh, both. I do. I've made some videos for Cotisol. Uh, I recorded one of my presentations. I've done marketing videos for Cotisol. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last one I made was for the international conference, showing people, hey, this is these are the options for doing presentations. How you can sign up. Uh, but I've also explored making video courses. And so uh, last year I released my first Udemy course, oh, good. teacher training course on the four C's, uh, creative thinking, critical thinking, communication, collaboration. Mm-hmm. I also made my first English teaching video course on on OPIC, on how to improve your speaking skills. Uh, wow. If you know OPIC. Uh, and they've That's been, fabulous. I've got, I've got uh, a lot of students, so I'm happy about that. Uh, I've also experimented with YouTube a little bit, not full-time but i've experimented so i have uh, all that kind of equipment i think like you have in the background right now you have a green screen i have mm-hmm. uh dslr camera i have the lapel microphone i have a nice computer to edit it on so i i like video editing i like making videos and if i'm not doing that um recently i've started playing some video games again which i don't play very often but if I have a, a summer free or a winter free, then Netflix or TV or right, get right. invested in a, a video game or something like that. You're not a uh, a closet musician, are you? Uh, I wish I was. <laughs> There's nothing in my closet, unfortunately. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> my my son was uh, was quite shy, and uh, he would sort of live in his room, and eventually uh, he came out playing the guitar. So. Well, I mean, if, that, if that's his muse, then uh, mm. maybe that's what could bring him out. Um, yeah. Actually, I remember the the only instrument I ever tried to play was the violin. I was age four, and mm. this is a, another teacher story. Uh, the teacher was so ridiculously strict. I won't say his name. I remember his name because he was that okay. strict. But I don't know if he, he would be listening. Probably not. I won't say his name. This is where maybe I was naturally shy anyway, but it probably made me even more shy. I would play the violin. I had no idea what I was doing. He would say, like, read the music sheets. And for me, it was all gobbledygook. Like, sure. What does that mean? I'm four years old. So, <laughs> and then, so my strategy was look at what the other kids are doing in the violin classroom. And I would just try and copy them. And every 10 minutes or so, this teacher would shout at the top of his voice, like a, vo- like a volcano is erupting. Uh-huh. Stop. What are you doing? Like, it was so angry. And, Every after every violin class, I would go home quite upset. I would tell. Them, eventually, my mom said, 
no more violin classes. You will not attend many more classes. That teacher is is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So that was my only memory of trying to play an instrument. Well, so that that can be the effect a bad teacher has if you there you go. If you yeah. leave such a mark, they'll never want to do it again. So if you're <laughs> teaching English, don't do that. They'll never want to learn English again. I, I did not expect that lesson, but uh, to come from that question. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Wayne. Uh, that's a, an hour exactly, and uh, I really appreciate Perfect timing. Your... Yeah, yes. never well finished done. too early. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> I uh, I really appreciate your time and uh, and your talents and sharing them with uh, all of us uh, through Cotisol, and I'm sure your students would say the same uh, in from your classrooms as well. So thank you. Thank you very much. And my last message as the publicity chair, please come to join Cotisol. Please join Cotisol. Uh, we'd love to uh, see you here in the organization. This podcast presentation has been brought to you by the Youngin Gyeonggi chapter of Cotisol, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting scholarship, dissemination of information, and facilitating cross-cultural understanding of teaching and learning English in Korea. Thank you for listening. Thank you.